Brody last week for John two weeks ago of getting me two weeks uh, of, of rest, of a break. Uh, if we haven't had a chance to meet in those two weeks or even beyond that, my name is Zach Thompson and I'm on staff here. And I'm going to really try hard to see if I can remember how to do this thing after this pause. Uh, the great part of getting rest, the hard part of do I still remember how to do this? And, and if nothing else, uh, well, I'll just be up here and, and embarrass myself. And if there's one thing that I hope that I've made clear over the past almost two years that I've been here, is I find constant and consistent ways to embarrass myself. Uh, I was thinking about that in particular uh, this past week of, of one of the ways that, that I do this, and I'm sure I'm not alone in this. This is something that ends up being fairly common. We, we look up and we see someone waving at us. Now, sometimes we know the person, so uh, it's natural to think they may, might be saying hi to us, but I think in particular those times where I don't recognize them I, and, and that fear sets in oh no, why can't I remember? Uh, why can't I place them? Who is this person? And so uh, to, to overcome the fact that I'm a terrible person who clearly forgets who people are, I wave to them only to realize that the person next to me who actually does know them is waving to them. And now it's that awkward time of trying to justify my hand being up in the air. How can I excuse this? I thought as well of a situation that thankfully I've not been a participant in, just someone who laughs at other people who do it. Uh, someone sees a celebrity, and so they run up to him, grab a picture with him, they're excited, they post it, and it's only in reading the comments that's the person in the picture, not a celebrity, just some stranger they accosted in the street. And yet in each of these situations, the answer to that question of who are you, well, it saves from some embarrassment of knowing that I don't know them, there's no reason for them to be waving to me. It could save me from trying to, to wave back to them. Or it could save people from taking a picture with a Tom Hanks who's overweight, balding, and only kind of sort of looks like Tom Hanks. Who are you? It's a question that's been coming up multiple times throughout the book of Luke as we've been reading through this together. Jesus starts his ministry in chapter 4, and, and people uh, see him doing these miracles in his hometown, and they say, who are you? Aren't you Joseph's son? How are you able to do all this? Jesus then casts a, a demon out of someone, and, and the crowd murmurs, who is this one with power and authority? Jesus brings a, a widow's son back to life, and, and people are taking guesses. Who is this one? Oh, well, it's clearly this. No, no, it's not this one. But they're not sure. They're, they're still trying to figure it out. Even Jesus' disciples, those closest to him, when Jesus calms the storm, they say, who then is this that has power even over the wind and the seas? And in chapter 9, where we will find ourselves today, there's the question again. Herod, the ruler over this area that Jesus has been in, he is trying to figure out an answer to this question. Who is this Jesus? There's been murmurings. There's been wondering. There's been uh, people guessing that he is this Messiah. Another word for that is the Christ, this long-awaited one, this expected one who has finally come. 
We've talked about it multiple times. Israel is an oppressed nation. They've been conquered by Rome, and they see God's provision for, for Israel throughout the past, and so they're wondering, when will someone come to rescue us? When will someone come to free us? When will someone come to, to make it so we are no longer oppressed anymore? So they've been asking this question. But it goes further back than that. Thousands of years ago to King David, when Israel was at its, its best, its most prosperous as a nation, well, one was promised to come who would surpass even that of King David. When will he come? But even further than that, it's the hope of all humanity for this person to arrive. Mankind rebelled against God and pain and brokenness and sin entered into this world, but a promise was given from the very beginning that one will come to make all things new, to make all things right. And so the pleading of every person is, when will this one come? When will the Christ, the Messiah, the expected one arrive? And now we see Jesus doing much of what the Christ is supposed to do. Is he the one? But this is a much more dire situation than just thinking that they're the one and waving to them or thinking that they're the one and taking a quick picture with them. Because if this is the Christ, well, then that changes everything. But getting it wrong, well, that's disastrous. And we see an answer to that question, who is this Jesus? It's, it's smeared all over Luke chapter 9. It's, it's focused almost entirely on who is this Jesus, answering the question that's been asked over and over throughout this book. And it's such a pivotal chapter here because at the end of it, it talks about how Jesus' mission and focus and direction shifts. And so for us to understand the book of Luke, for us to understand our very lives, we need to leave this chapter with an answer to that question. Who is this Jesus? What we'll see as we read throughout parts of Luke chapter 9 is that Jesus is that expected Christ, the long-awaited one, finally come to make things right, but he does so in a very unexpected way. So I guess we could put it, Jesus is the unexpected, expected Christ. We'll focus on that throughout our time in Luke chapter 9. Jesus is the unexpected, expected Christ. And we see that when the question of who is he is asked directly. Our first passage for the day, Luke chapter 9, verses 18 through 20. Luke chapter 9, verses 18 and 20. It says this. Now it happened that as he, this is Jesus, was praying alone, the disciples were with him. And he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. But others say Elijah and others that you're one of the prophets of old uh, has risen. And then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. Who do they say that I am? As you're listening to those that are on the outsides, who, who do they say that I am? And, and you see a variety of answers here. Maybe people that they've seen. They, they saw John the Baptist earlier, now he's dead. Maybe he's been brought back to life. Or uh, they think of the important figures that they read in the Old Testament. Elijah was one who's supposed to come to announce that the Christ is, is near. 
or people that they thought of prophets of old. They're, they're, they're trying to conceptualize who is this one, but Jesus then turns the question, who do you say that I am? And Peter gets it correct. You are the Christ of God. We, we talked a little bit about that expectation of the Christ coming, and, and it's one that, that I think we can all feel. It's hard to, to put ourselves fully in that first century of why are those, they so desperate for the Messiah, for the Christ, to have someone come and make things right. It, it's hard for us to picture ourselves as a nation that's been oppressed, as, as God's chosen people set aside for worship of him, and now there's foreigners, there's people that aren't God's people uh, telling them what they can and cannot do, and this has been in the case for, for so long, this desperate plea of someone to finally come and make things right. But then the thought of, of what Israel used to be, for someone to come and put Israel back on the map, to bring prosperity and goodness, for, for it to be a thriving nation again, instead of sputtering as it goes from foreign oppressor to foreign oppressor. It's hard for us to imagine the desperate plea that grows from being oppressed for someone to bring hope again but at least we can conceptualize the need for things to be made right. That we too can look at this world and wish for something more. That we too can look at this world and see things that just aren't the way they ought to be. That we too can wish for there to be restoration, the renewal of all things. This desperation for someone to come and make things right. I think we can sympathize there we can understand this desire for the christ to come and peter announces he has you are he these other people are murmuring they're trying to guess at it some are, are guessing correctly some are guessing in, in uh, uh, different levels of outlandish options and yet he turns the question to his disciples who do you say that i am in fact, it's a question that gets turned to every person. Who do you say that Jesus is? It's the most important question that we will ever get asked. Now, we, we ask and we are asked a variety of, of very important questions. Where will I go to college? Will you marry me? Should I do this job or this job? Would you like soup or salad? How we answer all of these questions completely changes the trajectory of our lives. And yet, alone all the questions that we ask to try to understand those lives, what's the meaning of it? Does what I do have any sort of significance or meaning? What's the purpose of all of this? We ask these questions, and they're really important questions for us to understand, and yet they pale in comparison to that greatest of questions. Who do you say Jesus is? Because if we say he is that long-awaited Christ who's come to restore all things, well, that informs how we answer these other questions. That informs how we understand all of our existence, all of our purpose, all of what we value. And yet the importance of the question isn't uh, in what we generate as an answer. Like maybe we get the titles right or part of him or, or we think of the parts of him that we like. Do we like his teaching? And so that shows up in our answer. Do we like some of the, the morals that he talks about? Do we like the thought of having hope and Jesus might bring us some hope? Do, do we like what he might add to our lives? Do we like some of these stories that we have of him? 
Do we like the thought that there are being more to life than just what we see on the surface? No, our answer to the question isn't anything that we generate. It essentially boils down to this. Do you say Jesus is who he says that he is? It's not enough to get the titles right or to like parts of him or, or to affirm aspects. It's do we say he is who he says that he is? These people are murmuring. They're trying to guess at it, and, and that's the wrong answer. Peter says you are the Christ, and yet Jesus goes on in the passage to tell us exactly what that means. It's not enough to get the title right. What does Jesus say that that means? Let's pick it up in the next section. Luke 9 and 21. Peter just said, you are the Christ of God. In verse 21, he, this is Jesus, strictly charged, them, uh, charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Peter says, you are the Christ. And Jesus responds by saying, that's exactly right. Good job. No, he doesn't. He says, tell this to no one. Now, we may have been noticing this trend. This has happened a few times now where Jesus tells people to say nothing. Jesus has, has uh, cast out demons, and it says he, he charged them uh, to not say anything because they knew he was the Messiah, because he was the Christ. They knew who he was, and Jesus says, tell no one. Why? Jesus heals people, and then he tells them, don't tell this to anyone. Why does Jesus keep silencing people? This, this is good news for all people. That's what we're seeing the book of Luke is all about. Why is Jesus stopping the good news in its tracks? Well, again, I think we need to go back to what those expectations of the Christ were. This long-awaited one, this one who's going to come and make things right. Some of the expectations started to shift a little bit of the Christ is going to come and, and make Israel free from Rome. The Christ is going to come and, and fix our problems. The Christ is going to come and, and, and make things in my day-to-day -day life better. This idea that, that the Christ was going to come and solve problems in life took the focus and the foreground. That the things that they came across, these projects that they had, these ideas, that's what the Messiah was going to come and fix. And we too can fall into that trap you know, our lives would be so much better if this person was in office. Our lives would be so much better if, if our state had this law. Uh, my, my life would be so much better if I had this thing or, or if it was different in this some other way. That's the only true and lasting place of having hope. The only true and having, uh, lasting place of having anything good in our lives is, is from Jesus. Our lives would be better if we were more like Jesus. Our lives would be better if more people knew Jesus. That's the only true and lasting place. And yet we can fall victim into thinking that the things that we come across, the aspects of our lives, the things that we wish were different, that's what Jesus is going to fix. No, Jesus changes everything. He's the Christ who's come to bring us closer to God in better relationship with him. So the expectation of what the Christ was going to do, it, it became so small that he was going to fix problems on this earth rather than fixing the greatest need that we have, which is sin, which is separation from God. That's what the Christ has come to do. So they had this smaller picture of what he was going to do, of what the Christ was to accomplish. 
Another aspect of that is, is that while the Old Testament says what the Christ will do, Jesus has come to fix this greatest of problems first, to bring us into relationship with God, to, to free us from the bondage of sin, to, to help uh, usher in God's kingdom. And yet, uh, having all kingdoms under his submission, well, that hasn't happened yet. It will occur in Jesus' second coming. But people weren't expecting them to be split. And so they had this, this uh, partial understanding of, of who the Christ was going to be. And so uh, it, it shifts what they thought the Christ was going to do. Partial knowledge can be a dangerous thing. It's like this. Uh, you hear of someone getting a new job, and you're excited for them. You want to celebrate this fact. So you say, come over to my house. We'll, we'll invite a few people over. We'll, we'll have a little party to celebrate you getting this new job. So they come. It, things are great. It's a really good time. And then it dawns on you, like, oh, I actually haven't asked yet. What, what is this new job that you have? Oh, I'm a robber. Thank you for this party. It was lovely. Now I'm going to relieve you and the other guests of your valuables. Partial knowledge can be a dangerous thing. And the same thing here, with people having a limited understanding of the Christ, of what Jesus is doing, for them to expect him to do what they expect the Christ to do, well, that could be a dangerous thing. Think of what happens. Jesus is announced as the Christ. He is 100%. He doesn't tell people to stop sharing this news. Tell everyone that I'm the Christ. I, I can prove it. Well, people start thinking that means something different. Jesus is the Christ. Great. Let's start killing Rome. Jesus is the Christ. Excellent. He's here to solve my agenda. Or the religious leaders who don't see him as the Christ that they expected, they put him to death earlier than it needs to be. Partial knowledge of the Christ can be a dangerous thing. So Jesus says, don't tell this to anyone because they will think that I am the one that they're expecting. And yet what I'm doing is something more important. Because that's the other part of this. Their expectations of the Messiah, their expectations of the Christ, of the Christ is going to have them miss what Jesus is actually accomplishing. They're so, wait, uh, they're so ready and waiting for, for their project to be solved that they're missing what Jesus is doing. And Jesus shows what he's doing in this passage. Peter, you call me the Christ. That's correct. There, there's an implied uh, yes to that response. We'd tell this to no one. But it means something more than what you think. I am the Christ. And what that means is I've come to die. Jesus says, yes, that is correct. But what that means is something different than what you're thinking. I've come to be handed over and to die. And to understand this, how, how this Christ would do something so unexpected, why, why he would do something that, that was so uh, unthought of. Now, yes, the Old Testament does show things to where this, this isn't outlandish, it isn't a bait and switch. We can read after the fact and understand parts of it. But clearly this was not the expectation of the Christ. When Jesus talks about his death, it says people are confused. When he talks about his death, people try to correct him at times. No, there's no possible way you could do this. When he's on the cross, he's mocked because clearly he can't be the Christ if he's being treated in this way. And yet Jesus shows us for him to be the Christ, this is exactly what this means. I think we get this uh, pretty vividly in, in another part of Luke chapter 9. It's this really fascinating, bizarre, and, and complex account that we call the transfiguration. Now, 
I do not have the time to do this justice, so I'm going to read through it inappropriately quickly, and as we're reading it, I'll just make some notes as we go. This is Luke 9. We're going to jump down to verse 28. Now, about eight days after these sayings, so I'm going to pause right there, first note. Uh, so he, can, uh, Luke is connecting these to everything that we just read. Who do they say that I am? You're the Christ of God. And what the Christ means is I've come to die. Luke is saying, read this account, the transfiguration, with that part in your mind. This is going to help us understand what it means that Jesus is the Christ. It's going to help us understand who he is and what it means that he has come to die. So about eight days after these things, he, this is Jesus, took with him Peter and John and James and went up on a mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothes became dazzling white. These are images that we see elsewhere of of the heavenly, of, of God's realm coming into contact with earth. And yet when we talk about the transfiguration, this isn't Jesus being changed into something different. The word is altered. It's, it's a, a, a way that we can get this is almost like a veil is being lifted. We are seeing Jesus for who he truly is. He is a heavenly individual even while on earth. This is so unheard of. How can someone be like this? We're seeing a picture of who Jesus truly is, a heavenly being even while on earth. Verse 30, and behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure. This is Jesus' death and what he was to accomplish at Jerusalem. So we have Moses and Elijah here, these two very important individuals in the Old Testament. They represent the law. Moses uh, gave the law and the prophets. Elijah was a prophet. So essentially what we have here is all of the Old Testament can be summarized as the law and the prophets. Uh, All of the Old Testament is confirming and pointing to and, and affirming all that Jesus is about to do in Jerusalem. All that Jesus is about to do in his departure and his death is pointing for that and affirming that. Verse 32, now Peter and those who were with him uh, were heavy with sleep. And when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it's good that we're here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. Now there are thousands, thousands of, exa- uh, of people guessing as to what Peter is trying to do in this. Uh, one is Peter is experiencing this heavenly situation, the brightness of it all, the glory of Jesus, seeing these individuals, and, it, and it's too much for sinful man to bear. And so it's looking to erect these shelters as protection from the glory of God. All that's theologically sound. I'm not sure that's what's going on here, though, but people suggest it, so I want to throw it out there as as one that people talk about. Another one is Peter could have in mind the the Jewish festival, the, the Feast of Booths. It was a time where Israel remembered their wanderings in the wilderness in the book of Exodus, that in all this time they had temporary shelter. So Israel would celebrate that and remember that by erecting makeshift temporary tents, and they would live in that but it's also a time of looking forward to God's future provision. Again, it fits thematically. I don't really know if that's what's going on here. What I'm slightly more convinced about is, is Peter's looking to honor Jesus in this one. Moses and Elijah, those are two of the most incredible and, and significant people for, for uh, the Jewish people. And look, Jesus, I am including you with them. Isn't that very honoring for you? I'm putting you on the same level as Moses and Elijah. 
but he's missing the fact that Jesus surpasses them all. What I think is probably more important in this one is Peter realizes that this is something that's never happened before. The glory of God made manifest here, seeing Jesus for who he truly is, a heavenly being while on earth, seeing Moses and Elijah pay homage to him, affirming what he's about to do. Wouldn't you want to prolong this? Wouldn't you want to continue to experience this? And it says that as uh, they were depart- as they were parting from Jesus, this is when Peter finally speaks up. He's like, "Let's build shelters. Let's make this last. Let's continue to experience this incredible thing, this taste of what he's been so hoping for. God's glory on earth. Things are so good. Things are restored. Things are shown for what they really are. God's presence is here. Let's make this last." And yet if he does this, then Jesus doesn't go to Jerusalem. He doesn't depart. He doesn't bring the glory of God to all places, not just a mountaintop. Regardless of what answer we go to as to why Peter suggests this, we are told that he misses the mark here. He says, for he did not know what he said. He speaks out of turn. This was the wrong thing to say. Verse 34, and as he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud, and a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one. Another way to put that would be my Christ, the one you've been waiting for. We started this with the question of who is Jesus. The book of Luke has been asking this question time and time again, and now we get a definitive answer. This is my son, the son of God, the Christ, finally come, listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone, and they kept silent and told no one in the days, anything, in those days, anything that they had seen. Jesus is the Son of God, the Christ of God. And what that means is not uh, that we get to try to understand or we get to say what that title means, that he has come to fix these problems that I think that I have or, or these understandings of what the Christ might do. No, he is the Christ. He is the Son of God, which means he has come to die. This is what Moses and Elijah are talking about, his departure, what he will do in Jerusalem. This is what Luke wants us to have in the back of our mind. He is the Christ. What that means is he will be handed over, he will die. We have to understand that as the backdrop for the transfiguration. And yet we see this glorious moment. The veil is lifted. We see Jesus as his heavenly being. We see him as the one who's been waited for. Why is there talk of his death? We see this incredible moment, this foretaste of what God has promised to do to bring his glory, to bring his presence, to bring restoration, to show the true heart of things, not to be obscured by the sinful world anymore. We finally see it on this mount. The cries of all people everywhere is for restoration. It's finally here. Why is there talk of his death? Why is that the focus in this most glorifying of moments? I really like this quote from 
Joseph Hall. He was a bishop in England in the 1640s. Uh, believe it or not, I need to modernize a little bit of the language for us. Uh, but I, I, I like that that he uh, what he says here. It's a little bit of extended quote, but I don't care. I just liked it too much. Um, it, it, he's asking this, that very question in this most glorious of moments. Why is the focus on Jesus' death? He says, a strange opportunity in his highest exaltation to speak of his sufferings. When his head was shining with glory to tell him how it must bleed with thorns. When his face shone like the sun to tell him that it must be spat upon. When his garments glistened with that heavenly brightness to tell him that they must be stripped and divided by the soldiers while he's on the cross. When he was adorned by the saints of heaven to tell him that he must be scorned by the worst of men. When he's seen between these two saints, Moses and Elijah, to tell him that he must be seen between two criminals. In a word, in the midst of his divine majesty, to tell him of his shame. While he was transfigured on the mount, to tell him how he must be disfigured upon the cross. In this incredible moment, God's glory there, seeing Jesus for who he truly is. How can we talk about something as terrible as his departure of what he will do in Jerusalem? Because this is who he is. The God who says, this is my son. What it means is that he has come to do all that he says he's doing. To be the Christ means that he will go and die this death that ought to be ours, despite being this heavenly figure that's on earth that no one has ever seen, and yet the world has been utterly waiting for. The transfiguration helps us to understand that as people look at the cross of Jesus, how can we find hope there? How can we be united around something that's so dreadful? How can we see the death of a man as something that's good for us, that's good for the world? Well, it's not because after the fact he he finally showed them, well, this is what it all meant. No, before that, we see this little taste, this taste of the future when God's glory has finally come, this taste of who he truly is as a person, and that that isn't being changed, that that Christ, this heavenly being, has come to do something that we desperately need. More than parts of this world being fixed, he's come to fix the deepest part of it. That's in all of us, that's in all things. The Christ has come. That is who Jesus is. We said that 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 answer to that question of who is Jesus is the most important question that we are asked. And it's such an easy question to answer. Is he who he says he is? We don't need an essay format to respond to that question. It just takes one word. That word is yes. Acknowledging all that he says he has done. He is the Christ who we've been waiting for, who's come to die a death that should have been ours, to bring us into new life with him. That he is this perfect heavenly being who has never done wrong, and yet he bared a weight that was ours for us. Is he who he says he is? It just takes one word to acknowledge that. And it's also the most difficult question for us to answer. Because by saying yes, 
that has ramifications. By acknowledging that he is the Christ, the long-awaited one, well, that changes every part about us. It changes how we respond, how we live, how we follow him. There's no passivity in this answer. If he's the Christ, then the acknowledgement of that takes every part of who we are as we follow after him. So I want to leave us with with three things about what following after him looks like. And and we get these from Luke chapter 9. If by acknowledging him, who do you say that he is? Do you see Jesus, or do you say Jesus is who he says he is? If if we say yes, what does it look like to actually follow him in that? Three things that we see throughout the book of Luke. One is it means that we are following his teaching. Following his teaching. I mean, think back to, to God's endorsement of him. He says, This is my son. My chosen one, listen to him. Following him means we listen to him, we obey him, we, we follow the life that he's called us to live. And yet he doesn't call us to live in a way that he himself has not gone through. He instead is an example for us. I, I skipped over it earlier, but I want to backtrack to Luke 9, uh, verse 23. Luke 9, 23 says this. So uh, Peter confessed he's the Christ. Jesus says what that means. He's come to die. And in verse 23, he said to all, anyone would, uh, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose and loses and forfeits himself. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes into glory, and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. So we see this call to follow Jesus' example. So we saw follow his teaching, and now follow his example. He says, anyone looking to follow me, they must take up their cross daily. It's this picture of self-denial. Jesus himself did this. He's not calling us to do something he did not. He denied himself by coming to earth. He showed love and compassion to all, and he died on a cross, a death that was never his, but it was ours. And he calls for us to have the same sort of self-denial, to take up our cross daily. It's an image that we understand a little bit more after Jesus' death. But to take up a cross, the the idea was when someone was sentenced to crucifixion, they had to carry their own crossbar, the horizontal bar there. And they would carry this to the point where they would be crucified, where they would die. And when you had your crossbar, well, there was no turning back at this point. The verdict has been given There's no hope of rescue. There's nothing else to cling on to. Your fate has been set. And so we see this this picture of radical self-denial here, this idea of taking up the cross. It's, It's not finding any hope or fulfillment in this world anymore. There's nothing to be found there. It is only focused on who has come before. The example of Jesus, who so denied himself, we're following in his footsteps of self-denial as well. This detail that we find here that Luke gives to us, Jesus says to take up your cross daily. Daily. What, What does it look like to do this daily? 
Are we daily evaluating if we are following Jesus alone or if we're being lured by the bright and shiny things of this world? Are we daily uh, seeing if, if we value what Jesus values or are we finding hope and fulfillment elsewhere? Are we daily looking, do we serve like Jesus served, or do I just fill my time with things that that fit my needs, my desires? Are, Are we daily centering our time around Jesus, or is he just a part of my life that I stick on on occasion? Are we daily doing this? And this is so vital because every day provides new obstacles, new challenges, new temptations, new ways to take control of things that aren't ours to control. And yet the beauty of this is that each day comes with new mercies, new grace, new reminders of the beauty of Jesus and the superiority of following him. And yet this life that we're called to, the self-denial, it says if anyone wants to save his life, will lose it. But anyone who, who loses his life will, will save it. What is it, what is it, is it gain again to, a man to, to uh, gain the whole world? What does it profit man to gain the whole world? Like This is so counterintuitive to us. To deny ourselves in this way, it, it seems like such a silly way to live. Well, I think of 1 Corinthians 1, verse 18, which I'll read for us. You don't have to turn there if you don't want to. It says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. And to those who aren't trusting in Jesus, to those who do not say that he is who he says that he is, this self-denial, this way of living, the cross itself, well, it's the stupidest thing of all time. But, but, To us who are being saved, it is the power of God. This thought of denying ourselves, this thought of following Jesus, this thought of trusting in him, this thought of seeing uh, him as the Christ, of of saying yes to do you say he is who he says he is, of answering that question of who is, is Jesus. It looks so foolish to those around us. It looks so foolish if there is no Jesus. And yet, because there is, well, it's the only way to live. We follow Jesus. We follow in his teaching. We follow his example. And then finally, we follow him into glory. I love the detail that's given. Moses and Elijah are in glory as well. This, this time on the mountain, it's this foreshadowing, this little taste of what the future will bring to us. It is a time of restoration of peace, of power, of life, of hope. And what we see on this mountain, this little picture of it, what is as well, it's a promised eternal reality. The restoration of things has come. The renewal of all things is happening because Jesus has come. Jesus is who he says he is. He is the Christ, the Son of Man, the Son of God. What's beautiful in all of this, while we are called to follow him, while we are called to to follow his example, to obey him, to trust him, to learn from him, to deny ourselves, to live as he's called us to live, what's beautiful in all of this is that it it might make us full of, of worry. Are we getting it right? 
If the answer to that question is so important, do I, do I have it right? Am I, am I getting uh, this understanding of Jesus the, the way I need to? What I love here is there's a bit of grace for us again, that it doesn't require a perfect understanding, but a willingness to follow him. We get this picture of Peter here. He calls him the Christ. Finally, someone gets it right. And then later on in the passage, he blunders. He did not know what he was saying. He calls Jesus the Christ and then later on goes on to deny him. And yet we see this transformation in Peter because of this Jesus. It doesn't require a perfect faith. It doesn't require a perfect understanding. The perfection has already been accomplished in this one. Jesus has come. He is who he says he is. He is the perfect heavenly being. He is the Christ who came to die for us. And because of that, that question gets asked to every single person. Who do you say he is? Let me pray for us. Father, we are so grateful to have your word written for us, written for people in so many languages, at times difficult to understand and yet so clear. So we ask this question, who are you? It's one that's been asked throughout this book. It's one we answer with our life and our decisions, with our words, and yet you show us exactly who you are. We are grateful for your teaching, your instruction, your guidance as we are figuring out what does it mean to follow you? What does it mean that you have come? What does it mean that you have died? You show us in your words, you are the Christ, the son of man who's come to die. You show us in your stories that you are the exalted one in glory on the mountain, telling us that this is who you are. And this is what you've come to do. Let us continue to follow you and follow your teaching to be shaped and guided by you because it's only in you do we find life and fulfillment and hope and restoration. We follow your example of denying ourselves. So often we are sidetracked by things that we think are valuable or will give us hope and they fall short. So let us focus solely on you as we wait the day that we follow you into glory and all things are made new. Is not something needed because it's something that's realized. So it's to you that we pray. Amen. <laughs>